and pull out your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and pull out your listening guide. I would love for you to write some things down tonight. I know I say that every week, but I especially mean tonight because the passage of scripture that we're going to read, it feels fairly complicated. Uh, it, it is definitely very wordy and it's easy to get lost in the words. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you read the Bible and after you finish a passage, you think to yourself, I assume that was really good, but I don't know what I just read. The passage we're going to study tonight is that passage and mostly because there's a name in there that we're not used to, uh, Okay, and that's not a name that any of us are thinking about. It's a pretty mysterious character in the scripture, and it mentions his name quite a bit. So as you'll see in your listening guide, uh, we've broken up the paragraphs and given them subject headings so that we know what it is we're reading as we're reading it. And so the first one in your listening guide that you received when you came in is that is Mekezeldek's background. That's verses one through three. So let's read that together of Hebrews chapter seven. This Mekezeldek was the king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Mekezeldek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Mekezeldek. The name Mekezeldek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end of his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. So, Mekezeldek's background. In Genesis chapter 14, there's a story about Abraham, who was the great patriarch of Israel. And Abraham takes his clan and goes to war against some other clans because Abraham's nephew had been captured. Some of uh, his goods and his things that he owned had been captured. And so Abraham goes to battle against these clans and wins. And on his way back from battle, Mekhezeldek comes to him. And immediately Abraham knows Mekhezeldek is somebody special. He's the king of Salem, which was scholars believe, the ancient city of Jerusalem. Now we think of Jerusalem as just an ancient city in Jerusalem, an ancient city in the world, but this is like ancient, ancient Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem before the Jeru. It was just Salem. And he was the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. Mekhezedek means king of justice. So he was both justice and peace. And he was a priest of the most high God. Abraham offers him a tithe of all that he had won when he went to battle against these other clans. And then Mekhezeldek blesses him and Abraham gladly receives it. And that's all that we know about Mekhezeldek. He really makes three appearances in the scripture. Genesis chapter 14, once in the Psalms and here in Hebrews chapter seven. And it says he has no history. No one knows where he came from and no one knows what happens after this story, the author of Hebrews doesn't think that he just simply died in the way that you and I die, but somehow he is living on forever and becomes a significant pattern for Jesus. So heading number one, Mekhezeldek's background. Heading number two, Mekhezeldek was greater than Abraham. Verse four, consider then how great this Mekhezeldek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Mekhezeldek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Mekhezeldek placed a blessing upon Abraham. 
the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. So again, Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, this would be like Israel's George Washington, only if we were all related to George Washington and could all collectively trace back our lineage to him. Even greater than that was Abraham. And this author of Hebrews is saying, Mechizedek is even greater than Abraham. Abraham gave him a tithe. Abraham received a blessing from Mechizedek. Heading number three, Mechizedek was greater than the Levite priests. Verse eight, the priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Mechizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the one who collected tithe, paid a tithe to Mechizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Mechizedek collected the tithe from him. So Mechizedek is greater than the Old Testament priests of Israel. The next subject heading, the priestly system was insufficient. Verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Mechizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is our Lord Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priest coming from the tribe. In the fifth subject heading, the final one, Jesus is superior. Verse 15, this change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Mechizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Mechizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. So you see in your listening guide, in summary, the priests were good. Mechizedek was better. Jesus is the best. The Levite priests were good. Mechizedek was better. Jesus is the best. That priestly system, which the author of Hebrews mentions, it was important. You remember the overarching story of the first half of the Old Testament. God's people, Israel, are slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God, send us a rescuer. God does. He sends Moses and through Moses performs signs and wonders. Pharaoh finally lets lets the Israelites go and they begin to live in the desert in their tents. But God also lived with them. They could look up to the top of Mount Sinai and they could see him in lightning and thunder. When they woke up in the morning, they could look over to his tabernacle, the tented temple there. They could see his cloud of smoke. That God and his presence was there in this tent. But the question is, is how does this holy, unmovable, unshakable, righteous, pure God live with basic humans like us? So God instituted this priestly system, a system of sacrifices. And he set apart a certain tribe of people, the tribe of Levi, and they would be the priests. They would minister these sacrifices in that temple. And in Exodus, we see how they were set apart. Uh, First, if you were going to be a priest from this tribe, you had to be bathed in public. So I'm out right there. (laughs) They were bathed in front of everybody. 
And then there was a sacrifice made and they took some of the blood and they put it on the right earlobe of these priests, on the right thumb and on the right big toe. And these priests began to minister in the temple, making these sacrifices so that forgiveness of sins could be given to the people of God so they could be near God. But there was a problem. It was insufficient because these priests, they would die and a new set would have to be anointed and set apart and serve in the temple. And then they would die and a new set of priests would have to be anointed and set apart to serve in the temple. And these sacrifices, they didn't last forever. They had to continually be offered. It was like a hamster wheel. There was lots of religious movement, but no moving forward. And God wanted it that way. God knew that the system was insufficient because the purpose wasn't be, to be perfect. It was first to hold up a mirror to people like us that all of our religious motions and hamster wheels is not good enough. We need something better. I mean, you think about the Ten Commandments, which is hidden at the heart of this law that Hebrews chapter seven talks about. They're very basic, very simple. And yet most of us have broken at least one in the last 48 hours. So simple to understand and yet so difficult, almost impossible, if not impossible to live out. It's a mirror holding up, God holding it up to us saying we need something more than religious emotions. Then Mechazeldeck appears to give us a pattern for Jesus. The priests were good. They served their purpose. Mechazeldeck was, was better. There's lots of symmetry between Jesus and Mechazeldeck. In Genesis chapter 14, it says when he comes to Abraham, he serves Abraham bread and wine. Just like in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus serves bread and wine to his disciples. One of the most mysterious things I think about Mechazeldeck is that he appears and then disappears. And that's it. He appears to serve his God-given function, and then he disappears. Why? For the glory of Jesus. So we can see Jesus more clearly. He appears and then disappears. And if we're going to follow Jesus, God is going to ask the same thing of us to sometimes appear, sometimes to disappear. He's going to ask you to step forward, and, and he's going to use you Sometimes we, we don't want to appear. We, we want to fade into the background, but he's going to push us forward nonetheless because that's the best thing for his kingdom. This last Tuesday, I had a doctor's appointment. And I'm not going to go TMI, but it was one of those doctor's appointments that you just kind of want to disappear. You don't want to make a lot of small talk and chit chat you know, with people. The technician comes in and, and, uh, and you know, they teach you at technician school while you're taking the blood pressure, the small talk thing, you know, they all kind of say the same thing. And so I'm talking with this guy. I don't really want to be talking with this guy. I just kind of want to fade into the background and disappear and have my appointment and then be on with it. But he's, he's talking me up. And then he asked the million dollar question when you're talking to me, what do you do for a living? And I have always wished that I could just say, oil and gas, or I'm a teacher, or I uh, am something, you know, something, but I always have to say a pastor. And it's even, uh, you know, I guess I don't have to say a pastor. I could lie. You know, pastors aren't supposed to lie. We, we do sometimes, but we're not supposed to. You know? And uh, so I'm hoping, well, you know, usually this shuts things down and uh, that would kind of be great. And I was like, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh yeah, tell me about that. And I'm like, ah. But at the same time, I just felt this nudge from God. No, just don't run away from this. Don't run away from this. Step into it. I had a really great spiritual conversation about church and 
Jesus and his future. Even though sometimes we want to disappear, God's going to say, no, I need you to appear. I need you to be present. I want to use you. But then sometimes he is going to push us to the background. Our pastoral staff recently for fun has been taking the Enneagram. I don't, anybody do the Enneagram? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a, it's like Myers-Briggs, only it sounds more like a cult. Uh, it's this ancient personality test really. And, and so I took it and it gives you a number. I'm a number three. A number three is an achiever. And so I was reading a book that went along with the Enneagram to tell you a little bit more about yourself. And, you know, it tells you all the great things about your personality type. And then it tells you all the awful things about your personality type. And in this book, it says your core fear and the core fear of a number three, that's me, is that my life won't matter, that I will have lived and died and that will have been it. Uh, a A number three wants to make a wave so then there's a wake that people's lives are affected. And, you know, I was thinking about that and I, and I was thinking about how it's, in one sense, it's scary for a number three to put your life into the hands of Jesus because he might say, no, you, you're going to be in the background. You ever hear people talk about legacies and leaving legacies? Those are always number threes. They're the people who want to leave legacies. They want their life to matter beyond their life. But in the kingdom of Jesus, he might just say to you, I want you to be a no-name background player because that's best for my kingdom. So in one sense, it's scary for me to put my life into the hands of Jesus because he might say, you're just gonna be a role player. But the great thing about wanting to live a life that matters and putting that life into the hands of Jesus is, that in his kingdom, even the small stuff counts. See, if you want your life to really matter and go beyond you in this world, you're gonna have to do something great. You're gonna have to sell more than anybody's ever sold. You're gonna have to win more than anybody's ever won. You're gonna have to be more, act more, do more than everyone else if you want people to remember you in this world. But in the kingdom of Jesus... Even the invisible stuff shapes history. And more than history, it shapes eternity. And that's why we can be confident following in the steps of Mekeseldek, knowing that God is going to ask us sometimes to appear and sometimes to disappear. The priests were good. Mekeseldek was better. But as you know, Jesus is the best. You know, Mekeseldeg, he appeared one time to one person. Jesus is for all time and for all people. So now, therefore, you see in your listening guide, since Jesus is our best priest, we draw near to God. says in verse 19 for the law never made anything perfect but now we have confidence in a better hope that better hope is Jesus as our perfect priest through which we draw near to God I was 23 years old Amanda and I had been married for a couple of years in our one bedroom apartment off 290 and I get a phone call from the assistant of a pastor that I had really looked up to. I had never met him. I had only heard his sermons. Uh, 
but uh, his sermons had shaped my life as a young man. And so I, I don't know what the equivalent is. You know, pastors geek out about other pastors, but you know, if you're in oil and gas, you know, maybe it's like if the assistant to the CEO of Chevron called you and said, Hey, what's going on? That's what it was like to be for me and teachers. I don't know like who you look up to the superintendent of the world. I'm not really sure. But I'm like, holy cow, like how do, how do these people even know my name? But they call and the assistant says, hey, we're putting on this conference and we want you to come and be a part of it. I mean, a small part of it, but we want you to come and be a part of it. I couldn't say fast, yes, fast enough. I thought maybe they had gotten the wrong number, but I was gonna accept the invitation anyway. And they say, that's great. We're glad you're in. Uh, we actually need you to fly uh, to this place like in two days. Can you do that? We're gonna have a little meeting, a little pre-meeting before the conference, do some planning, that kind of and I was like, yes, absolutely. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. I'm just geeking out all over the place. And so they buy me an airplane ticket. I don't think at that point anybody ever bought me an airline ticket, you know. And uh, I get to the airport and there's somebody with a sign that says my name on it. This is like, I'm just, my mind is blown because if they had asked me to fly to Nashville to hold the sign for somebody else, I would have said yes to that. And that my name is on the sign. And I'm like, that's, that's me. I'm that guy. This is the greatest moment of my life. And we get in the car and they take us to this restaurant where this, this meeting is going to happen. And I walk in and it is like a who's who of the pastoral world. I mean, there are pastors there whose books that I've read and sermons that have deeply affected me. There are musicians there. And I'm like, I own their CDs. That tells you how long ago it was. I own their CDs. And I'm just, this is like, this is the greatest moment of my life. And then... You know, that was like when I walked in the door, but then step two inside the door, it's like, now what am I going to do? Because none of these people know who I am. I don't have any books. I don't have, I don't, nobody knows who I am. The guy who took me from the airport to the restaurant really didn't know who I was. Somebody just handed him that piece of paper with my name on it, said, go and pick this up. So, Imagine what it will be like when we stand before God. What am I, what am I doing here? Like, who am I? When we're standing in front of him and all of his righteousness, holiness, and fire and goodness. And then knowing what we know about us, how are we gonna stand there? that's why Jesus is our priest because he comes alongside of us and says you have a place here the father he you're not just another name on his list of names of people who are going to be at this meeting he's expecting you he loves you he's going to be excited to meet you let me take you to him let me introduce you around Jesus is our mediator he's the one who makes a way for us to stand before God. That's why we are able to draw near to God. How do I know when I'm near? If Jesus is our priest and I can draw near, how do I know when I am near the presence of God? Is there lightning? Is there thunder? Is there flashes of light? Is it like Moses when he saw a burning bush that wasn't consumed and God spoke to him out of it? Is it like Paul on the road to Damascus and there's a bright light and Jesus speaks out of the bright light? Is that how I'm gonna know when I'm near the presence of God? Sometimes, sometimes. I remember not long ago, I was, uh, it was lunchtime and I was in my office and I just had, just felt like instead of going to eat lunch, I should pray. And I'm gonna be honest, it wasn't like, 
man, I'm really excited to pray. It just felt like something I would ought to do. And so I sat in my chair and I started to pray. And after a while, I thought I needed to take this down to my knees. And I got on my knees and started praying. And after a while praying on my knees, I thought I need to go all the way with this and bury my face in the rug of my office. And I started praying. And when I got down on my face, I don't really have vocabulary words to describe what happened, but God met me there. And I started crying and I wasn't even sad. I wasn't praying about anything in particular, but just started just crying. And I started laughing, not like weird, like crazy laughing, but (laughs) Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says that in the presence of God is fullness of joy. And and it's real. I just always took that by faith. Like I assume once I'm in the presence of God, I'm going to be glad to be there. But I just, I just knew that. I just knew that I could be both broken and filled with joy at the same time and just lingered there and, and just knew, just knew, I just knew that God was near. Sometimes when I pray, I feel like my prayers had to break through 17 different layers before they get even out of the room I'm in. And other times it's like God is right there. And that was one of those moments. A couple of days ago, I was praying and none of that happened just regular, just normal. So which one was God near? I think God was near both times. Because sometimes God does come to you through lightning and thunder, through bright lights and fire. And other times it's like the presence of Jesus with the disciples. It's just daily. He's daily loving us, daily challenging us, daily teaching us, daily comforting us daily guiding us and daily with us. So how do I draw near? We see all kinds of examples in the scripture and none of the examples in my book are the same. It's always different. And when God draws you near, it will be a little bit different than the way he draws the person next to you. Jesus told a story about the prodigal son, you remember, and he ran away, rebellious, Eventually, he wanted to come back home. It was a long journey back home. It was the same distance back home as it was to get there. Eventually, he got back home and his father was eagerly waiting on him, just like God is eagerly waiting on us. But when Jesus was crucified, you remember he was flanked by two criminals. One of the criminals was insolent and uh, accusing Jesus while they're suffering and dying together, mocking Jesus. The other one said, this man is not guilty. We are guilty. He is not guilty. And he turned towards Jesus and he said, will you remember me? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I think everybody's journey in drawing near to God looks a little bit different, but they all start by turning our shoulders back home. Prodigal son had to turn his shoulders back home. And I think about that thief on the cross nailed there, what it would have been like for him to turn his body as much as possible to speak to Jesus, to draw near to God. Maybe today you're like the prodigal and you've been running from God. You've been running from God in your relationship. You know what he's asking of you. He's no, you know what he's asking you to step into. You know what he's asking you to step out of, but you've been running away. Maybe at work, maybe in a conversation that you're supposed to have, maybe in your daily commitment, you've been running, 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 and it's time to turn your shoulders back home. 
Maybe you'd say, I'm not rebelling against God. I wanna do what God wants me to do. And yet, even for those of us in that category, there's still a, still a turning that has to happen. Uh, yesterday, uh, you ever have one of those days where it just feels like anger is just below the surface always? You don't even really have a reason to be angry. And that was yesterday for me. I just felt like all of my reactions were 25% too intense. Right? Too intense in responding to my kids, too intense in responding to my wife, too intense in my voice, too intense in my silence. Just, just, I was just angry and I didn't know why. I really didn't have anything to be angry about. And my response all day was, whoops, I hope I don't do that again. Whoops, I hope I don't do that again. Whoops, I hope I don't do it again. And about six o'clock last night, I thought, you know what? I'm tired of this. I need to turn towards God. I just said, God, I don't know what's up with me today, but something is weird. And I need you to help me. I obviously cannot help myself. I'm just just asking you. So whether you feel like you're far away or you feel like you're at home, there's still a turning that consistently needs to happen in our lives. And all of that is possible because something better than the priests is available to us and something better than Mekezeldeck is available to us. The Lion of Judah, the priest of the Most High God, lives forever is available. Let's pray.